Welcome to this episode of the Disease Du Jour podcast on the topic of arboviruses in horses with Dr. Deb Sellen. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2021 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Sellen received her DVM from Louisiana State University and is board certified by the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine. She received her PhD in virology from North Carolina State University. She's a professor in veterinary clinical sciences at Washington State University, College of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sellen. Thank you. I really appreciate the invitation to be here, and I'm excited to talk about a topic that I really enjoy, infectious diseases. Well, and I think this is going to be really critical for veterinarians, not only for as a refresher for those who've been in the field for a while, or maybe, you know, some some great new information for either vet students or techs or new veterinarians, but it's really good to help veterinarians maybe learn some some differences, some phrasing that can be used when they're educating their horse owners. So today we're going to chat with Dr. Sellen about arboviruses, especially the mosquito-borne encephalitides. So let's just go back to the basics. What's the difference in infectious, contagious, communicable, and zoonotic, and how do you explain that to horse owners? Okay, great question, and one that has tripped me up in my career. I was asked that question on my PhD defense, what's the difference between an infectious and a contagious disease, and I had never really thought about it, and um, as I thought about it in that high-pressure setting, it suddenly became clear to me, so it's been sort of on my mind since then. Um, infectious disease is the broadest term that we use, and it refers to any disease caused by a microorganism. And usually that's either a bacteria, a virus, a fungus, a parasite. And I can give you four horse examples. So equine infectious anemia, which is the virus I did my research on as a PhD student, is a viral disease. Um, salmonella, which causes diarrhea in horses, is a bacterial disease. Ringworm, You've probably seen that on young horses, um, is a fungal disease of the skin. And then protozoal myeloencephalitis is caused by a parasite. So we get all types of infectious diseases in horses. Um, communicable disease is not a term that we use very often in veterinary medicine, but it's used quite commonly in human medicine. And the technical definition is that it is an infectious disease that's transmissible by contact with an affected individual, so an, a horse contacts another infected horse, or their bodily discharges or fluids, and that would include contact with respiratory droplets, blood, semen, by contact with contaminated surfaces or objects, so like the strangles horse that blows snots all over the water bucket, um, by ingestion of contaminated food or water, or by direct or indirect contact with vectors. And by vectors, we mean the mosquitoes that we're gonna talk about today. It could be um, ticks, um, could be mice vectors. Um, so of the four diseases that I shared you with you, equine infectious anemia, salmonella, and ringworm would be considered communicable under that definition. But EPM would not be considered communicable because it cannot spread directly from one horse to the next horse. Um, horses get it by eating the feces of a possum, so it's not really a communicable disease. Um, in a lot of websites that I look at and information I look at, the terms contagious and communicable are used interchangeably, but there's a small sort of technical difference between the two, and that is that a contagious disease is one that's transmitted by contact with the individual, with the fluids or the surface or the water, but vector-borne diseases like these arthropod viruses we're going to talk about today are not technically considered contagious in most circumstances. So um, in the other four diseases we talked about, salmonella and ringworm are definitely contagious, but EPM is not, and EIA is not, because equine infectious anemia is spread by biting flies. So in the absence of horse flies and deer flies, you can stable horses together and there's no problem. So all the contagious diseases are communicable, but not all communicable diseases are contagious. Then you get into the, the zoonoses or zoonotic diseases. Um, 
And those are ones that can be transmitted from animals to people under regular, just normal conditions. Um, of our four diseases, salmonella is a potential zoonotic disease. If your horse has salmonella diarrhea, it can pass from the horse to the individual if you get it on your hands and then you put your hands up by your mouth. And I have had veterinary students who develop salmonellosis while caring for horses with salmonellosis. So um, it can also happen the opposite direction, a reverse salmonosis, where there are diseases that we can have as people that we can spread to our horses. And in theory, salmonella could do it. I don't know that I've ever seen it happen that direction with people. Um, I've seen um, methicillin-resistant staph aureus that people can have go to their animals. That would be a reverse zoonosis. Um, ringworm is another example of a potential zoonosis from your horse. Horses with ringworm, um, people are not terribly susceptible to the species of ringworm that horses have, but it is possible and there are reports of people who got ringworm from their horses. So that would be an example of a zoonotic horse disease. But the other two that we talked about, um, EPM and EIA don't affect horses, so they would not, or don't affect people, so they would not be zoonotic diseases. So, so it can be really confusing getting those terms sort of mixed up, um, but we will try to clarify them and talk about them a little more in relation to the four diseases we're going to discuss, all of which are infectious diseases, all of which are caused by viruses. Um, they're all communicable, but only one is contagious, and only one is a potential reverse zoonosis, meaning it can go directly from horses to people. So I'll keep you hanging to find out which one it is that fits that. Um, the other three can occur both in horses and people, but they don't go back and forth directly between horses and people. There have to be other things in between. So our diseases du jour, are Eastern equine encephalitis, Western equine encephalitis, Venezuelan equine encephalitis, and West Nile encephalitis. Um, all of them sound similar. All of them um, horse owners are often familiar with because they're included on the label of the vaccines that they give their horses. I will say that most horse owners I talk to really don't have a clue about the distinction between these or the level of risk related to these. And, and that can be really important. The other thing these diseases have in common is that Eastern, Western, and West Nile are all included as part of core vaccination protocols recommended for all horses in the United States. Venezuelan is not included because it's not typically a problem for our horses in the US as we'll talk about. Um, so let's start with the three most closely related of these viruses, and that's Eastern, Western, and Venezuelan. And I'll just refer to them by that rather than the longer titles they have. All three of these are closely related viruses that are in the same genus, the alpha virus, alpha virus genus in the Togavirus family. This means they are really small little viruses. They have a protein coat, and they have a single-stranded positive sense RNA genome. Um, they're all spread by mosquitoes, but they all use different mosquito species. Okay, we're going to start with eastern equine encephalitis because it's the one that is um, most likely to affect horses in the United States at this time. It is active in the U.S. almost every year. It causes disease and death in horses every year. Um, and we're going to focus on what happens with horses, but I will occasionally throw in a few comments about how that relates to people. The, the first recorded epidemic of triple of Eastern encephalitis in horses probably occurred in the 1800s. So quite a long time ago before we even knew what viruses were. Um, we now know that this virus survives in the wild in a cycle. that's called a sylvatic cycle, which means it's in wild animals. And it normally lives in birds, songbirds, which are called passerine birds, songbirds and mosquitoes. And this virus just lives out there circling. The mosquito bites the bird. It carries it over to another bird um, and another mosquito bites. And most of these birds don't become sick at all. 
So the virus lives happily, the mosquitoes live happily, the birds live happily, it all seems to go pretty well. But these birds get a fair bit of virus in their blood. So sometimes a mosquito, usually of the species Culoceta, and that's gonna become important, um, sometimes those mosquitoes feed on the bird and then instead of running into another bird to feed on, they find a horse or a person and they decide they want a horse meal or a person meal and they bite those individuals. And when they bite them, the virus goes through the mosquito saliva into the horse or human blood and that initiates the infection. Um, now horses and humans <clears throat> get, can get quite sick from this virus, but they don't get high levels of virus in their blood. As a result, if another mosquito comes along and bites that person, even if they're really, really sick or bites that horse, even if it's about to die from Eastern encephalitis, it cannot get enough virus to transmit on to another animal. So we call horses and people dead end hosts. And when you see disease in horses or disease in people in an area of the United States at a certain time of year, you usually also will see it in the other species as well, but they're not directly related. And I have had horse owners that have come to me on occasion when I was practicing on the East Coast and say that their physician told them they needed to get rid of their horse because that's what put them at risk for Eastern encephalitis. And that is absolutely not true. Horses are no risk at all. As a matter of fact, it's helpful having horses out there because we know if they become infected, it means that there's virus active in the area and we should take um, mosquito prevention techniques into consideration. Um, so that's really nice. Um, we don't have to worry about it. It's not a zoonotic infection. It's not um, communicable between horses and people or even between horses and horses. It is, um, or it is communicable via mosquitoes only from those somatic cycles over to the dead end host. Um, there are other mammalian species that can get Eastern encephalitis, and some of you may have heard about them, like llamas, alpacas, occasionally even um, dogs, cats, swine. Those are usually rare. They don't cause terrible disease. This virus is most active on the east coast of the United States and some in other parts of the world. Um, it is uh, the, the states that tend to have the highest caseload each year are surprisingly Massachusetts is one, Florida is one, North Carolina is one, all those states along the East Coast. And I practiced for a while in North Carolina and saw a few horses with Eastern encephalitis when I was there. Um, clinical disease is most likely to be seen in those times of years when mosquitoes are most active. And usually it's towards the end, middle or end of the mosquito season, so late summer, early fall. And it takes time for that virus to sort of, every spring when the mosquitoes come out, it takes time for that virus to sort of ramp up in the population of birds and mosquitoes to the point that it spills over into the other species. So that's why we tend to see it in um, late summer and fall. Incubation period after a bite takes about one to two weeks, but there can be a short period of fever just a couple days after infection. And most people probably miss that in their horses because the horse is just a little quiet. And if you're not taking their temperature and monitoring closely, you wouldn't know. But after one to two weeks, they get quite a high fever. Um, up to 104, 105 is what is typical and they become profoundly depressed. Now, this disease has the nickname of sleeping sickness um, because it affects primarily the forebrain. And these horses can get very depressed, obtunded. Um, they may appear blind, they may head press. The ones I see just become almost non-responsive to people. It's like they're standing there and they just, kind of like what people talk about with COVID brain. They have encephalitis brain and they're, they just shut down. There may be a little bit of ataxia or wobbliness, but the predominant clinical signs are all related to this virus in the forebrain. Disease lasts two days to 14, days, but most of them die within three to five days. Of the small number of horses I've seen, I don't think I've ever seen one that survived. Um, the fatality rate is quite high for horses if they develop these um, clinical signs. And because they tend to live for a fairly short period of time after they get clinical signs, it's really hard to confirm the diagnosis before they die. 
we don't have a really good anti-mortem test. Most of them die before they get an antibody response that is convincingly detectable. So cases I, I've seen and that I talked to other people about, typically the diagnosis is confirmed at post-mortem. So if you have a horse and you're in an area where Eastern encephalitis is likely to be circulating, um, a post-mortem exam is probably really a good idea. And there's several tests that can be done. Um, RT-PCR to look for viral RNA, um, virus isolation on the tissues in the brain or immunochemistry, which is, is the one that the pathologists I work with have used the most. There is one anti-mortem test that you might consider if you see these horses really early and you do a spinal tap, they will have a neutrophilic pleocytosis in the cerebrospinal fluid, which means there's a lot of neutrophils there. And this is really uncommon for viral encephalitis diseases, and it can differentiate this disease from most of the others that we see. Um, it really is not terribly helpful to know that because there's no effective treatment that we have. Um, their uh, treatment is supportive. On occasion, horses will live, but the vast majority of infected horses die. This is a pretty highly fatal disease for horses. Um, the good news is that it's really pretty preventable if you vaccinate appropriately and according to the AAP recommendations. And the e Eastern encephalitis is considered one of the core vaccines for horses for really good reason. Every horse out there in an area where this Cubaceti seta mosquito resides is at risk. The spread of the disease is sort of defined by the geographic spread of this mosquito. And that's why we don't see it in the Western United States, because the mosquito doesn't come out here. Now with climate change, all of these vector-borne diseases, we're watching closely because the range of these vectors like mosquitoes and ticks is changing. So we need to keep an eye on that. But for now, still, um, we just don't see this disease in the West western part of the United States. There was a case in a human in 2016, and I got all excited when I saw that on the statistics mass, but I looked and investigated a little further. They had traveled to the Gulf Coast states immediately prior to becoming ill, so almost certainly acquired it when they were down on the Gulf Coast and not in central Montana. So those of us who live in the Pacific Northwest can relax. We don't think it's going to be here anytime soon. Um, typically, there are five to 15 cases a year in the United States, but 2019 was a banner year and there were 38 confirmed cases in people. Um, the trends in the numbers of cases tend to follow between horses and, and uh, the, the years we see more people infected, we usually see more horses infected too. Um, vaccination should occur at least annually. The best time to give the vaccine is immediately prior to the start of mosquito season. In areas where there's a lot of this virus activity, uh, there's often a recommendation to vaccinate twice yearly. So Florida, Massachusetts, North Carolina, uh, areas where you have high mosquito populations or where you know this virus shows up a lot, twice yearly might be considered and, you know, veterinarians should be willing to just discuss that. Um, the nice thing is if you, if you hear about a case in an area, that usually gives you enough time to talk to your clients about what this means how the disease is spread, and what they might want to do about vaccination. Vaccination shouldn't be the only preventive measure that's taken. Um, there's lots of things you can do to prevent mosquito populations. Um, you know, insect repellents, um, avoiding turning horses out in mosquito-ridden areas <laughs> um, early in the morning, late at night when mosquitoes are most active. Get rid of standing water anywhere you can. There are mosquito uh, eating, killing bugs that you can put. Um, there's some larval things that you can put into stock tanks to decrease mosquito populations in the stock tanks. And veterinarians um, can look that information up. The AAP has some information on it. There's a number of sources about lots of robust ways to prevent um, mosquitoes or decrease population numbers. And that can be just as effective as vaccination. And I, I guess I would highly recommend that you do both and not rely solely on one method or the other. Okay, Western equine encephalitis. This is a disease I get really intrigued by because I have been vaccinating horses for Western equine encephalitis for my entire career, which is 35 years or more now. Never seen a case. 
And I haven't heard of a case with confirmed Western equine encephalitis in ages. But we'll get to that part of it. First, let's start about the history. This virus was first discovered in um, 1930. So that's the time, the era of the depression. And there were huge numbers of horses affected with clinical disease. Um, there were approximately 6,000 infected, affected horses in the San Joaquin Valley of California in 1930 with about 50% mortality. So imagine 6,000 horses in one small, relatively small geographic area and half of them dying and possibly even some people infected. Um, this caught the interest, of course, of infectious disease experts, and there was a veterinarian who was on the faculty at University of California, I think in San Francisco. His name was Carl Friedrich Meyer, and this guy was really famous as a veterinarian and as an infectious disease specialist, and he, over the course of his career, it's fascinating, worked and made hugely important discoveries around a lot of infectious diseases to the point that it warranted an obituary in the New York Times when he died. He was that prominent, and so I'm excited to say the veterinarian is the hero of this story. Um, he became interested in what was causing these horses to die, and he was trying to figure out if there was a virus, but he couldn't get fresh tissue samples. The samples he got were all old, and they didn't get anything out of them. So he contacted a friend who was a veterinarian at the University of California, Davis, who gave him a heads up that there's this horse I know that's really sick, looks almost certainly like it's this whatever, we should go talk to this guy. So they got in their car and they drove miles away up to the farm and they went and knocked on the door and they talked to the farmer and said, I'll give you $50 for your, for your horse that's really sick and likely to die anyway. And the farmer said, heck no, I'm not selling you my horse, get off my property. So as they were leaving, the farmer's wife snuck outside and talked to him and said, I'll sell you the horse. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the $50. And so they set up this scheme and Dr. Meyer and his companion hid in the bushes across the road till the till nighttime. And they waited for this farmer to go to sleep. And when the farmer went to sleep, his wife put a light in the window so they would know he was asleep. And Dr. Meyer and his companion goes into the barn. They kill the horse. They cut off his head and put the head in the back seat of the car and drive off with it. And they drive back to San Francisco where Dr. Meyer is. And they stop about midnight at a gas station to fill up for gas. And they pull this horse head out of the back seat of their car and proceed to remove the brain and put it in a, a cooler while the gas station attendant is just standing there watching. And it is from this brain that they first isolated the virus, <laughs> which is I mean, just a story that would never happen today. And just is, I just find hilarious. and. Um, shows how intrepid Dr. Meyer was in really in his level of curiosity and wanting to find out what the heck is going on. Um, so the plan worked. They took a suspension of the brain. They inoculated into rabbits and guinea pigs. It caused them to get sick. They isolated the virus ultimately from it, and we knew it was Western equine encephalitis. Subsequently discovered um, that this virus is also in a somatic or wild animal cycle, goes among passerine birds, so the songbirds, and mosquitoes. But the primary mosquito vector is very different. It's Culex tarsalis, which is primarily in the Western United States. So that's why this virus was seen in the Western US. Um, there are a lot of other species that can be infected either experimentally or in the wild. Um, and there may be some reservoir infections out there. It's never been really clear. We do know that the clinical signs in horses are much less severe with Western than with either Eastern or Venezuelan, but the signs occur when they occur are very similar. They're forebrain. Um, mortality rate is much lower than either of the other two viruses, around 20 or 30 percent now. Um, and the diagnosis is made by paired antibody testing if the horse survives or postmortem testing like we described for Eastern. Now, the really intriguing thing to me is they were having massive outbreaks of this virus. And the last large outbreak that was described was in 1975 with about 132 horses up in North Dakota and Manitoba. Um, there were a few smaller epizootic outbreaks that have happened up until the early 1990s. There has not been a case of WEE confirmed in the US since the 1990s. The last confirmed case in the world was in Uruguay in 2009. 
so scientists started investigating mosquito pools in the Western United States. Well, is it in the mosquitoes? What's going on? Is it just evolved where it's not pathogenic? Um, you know, horses are dead-end hosts, so vaccination of horses shouldn't have an impact on whether the disease survives because its primary route of survival is circulating through birds and mosquitoes. So they started looking at pools, and over time, these mosquito pools had fewer and fewer and fewer viral uh, particles that could be detected or viral RNA that could be detected. There was one positive pool in the U.S. each year in 2009, 2010, 2013, and 2017. Um, nothing since then. And there have been no positive equine cases in at least 20 years, to the best of my ability to tell. And I was, as I was sort of prepping for this, I came across this paper written in 2020. Um, and it's called the submergence, in quotes, they put the word submergence, of Western equine encephalitis virus. They're sort of talking about the, we've talked a lot or we hear a lot in the news about emergence of newer viruses. And they were speculating on the same thing. What's causing the opposite to happen with this virus? It's just sort of submerging, which is a really important because if viruses can emerge, they could also disappear. And, you know, we've got lots of viruses emerging all over the place these days. So what causes them to disappear? And they have speculated that it's um, positive selection caused it to revert to an avirulent state and just sort of fade away. Um, and there may have been the virulence, the things that caused it to be really um, dangerous and cause bad disease, changed by either genetic drift or for some reason it was a negative selection pressure and it's evolved away. Um, and I think that's just fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to see what AAEP does about this because Western encephalitis has been considered a core vaccine for all horses in the United States for as long as WAE has had those lists. And I personally kind of think it might be time to reconsider that. Um, it's never been seen in the Eastern United States, so why should it be a core vaccine for the Eastern United States? Um, it now appears by every measure anybody can tell to be disappearing or nearly disappearing in the US. Now it could revert to virulence, there could be more mutations and things could come back. We probably have some warning of that. Certainly if I had a vaccine hesitant owner, or a really um, vaccine reactive horse, Eastern and Western, if I lived in the Western United States, I would say, you know, we probably don't need these for this horse, even though they're technically part of the core vaccine. And I think that's the important role, why it's important for us as veterinarians to understand these diseases that are really deep level. When we counsel an individual, regardless of what the core for the whole population is, sometimes the best choice for the individual might be quite different. And this is one of those where I am really curious to see where it goes. So that's Western encephalitis, never even seen it. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. Okay, the third one of the group is Venezuelan equine encephalitis. I have not seen Venezuelan equine encephalitis. It's considered a foreign animal disease. It was last in the United States in 1971. We'll talk about that. Um, I did, though, have the opportunity to work with this virus on an experimental basis when I was a postdoc in North Carolina. And I work with Dr. Robert Johnson, who does a lot of research with um, alpha viruses, and worked with Venezuelan equine encephalitis in a biosafety level three. Uh, facility and we use, we're looking at it in mice and so learned a lot about it there and this from the standpoint of global impact on human health and on equine health, Venezuelan is probably the most important of the viruses we're talking about right now. And it has some things that are in common with Eastern and Western, but it has some things that are really different. 
It looks like to me it was first described in South America in the 1930s, which is about the time I think we became really keyed into the idea of viral diseases. Um, in Colombia, the country, in 1960s, it was estimated that 50 to 100,000 horses died and a quarter of a million people were affected with this virus. So it has the potential for massive outbreaks. Um, this one, Venezuelan virus, has about six different subtypes and they're classified by Roman numerals. One, two, three, four, five, six, I, 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 I. Um, most of these don't cause disease. We refer to them as sort of endemic types. Um, and there is a, like subtype two, Roman numeral two, the Everglades virus is thought to be circulating in Southern Florida and it doesn't cause any problem at all. It doesn't cause disease. But there are some strains within subtype one that cause severe disease. They're called one AB and one C. And those two strains are the ones that are sort of on the watch list for problems. And there are periodic outbreaks of these epizootic strains in Central and South America primarily, and they occasionally come up into Mexico. Matter of fact, um, just this year in July, there was a warning statement issued from the USDA that there was confirmed VEE activity in Mexico. And uh, as a result, there were some sort of restrictions or delays on the import of equine uh, products and, and horses from Mexico while that's watched. Now, it was southern Mexico, so it wasn't really close to the border. But we're going to come back to talking about Mexico and, and monitoring what's going on in Mexico in relation to VEE. The enzootic strain, so that Everglades strain in Florida and other enzootic strains in other places in the world, they exist in a sylvatic cycle. The little different because this time it's mosquitoes and small mammals, usually rodent species. And it just rotates around and around between the rodents and the mosquitoes and it doesn't bother anybody. Um, the epizootic strains that, that really cause the massive outbreaks of disease, don't, they rotate round and round between mosquitoes and horses. And horses are the amplifying host. They get a very high level of viremia and they propagate this virus. And we don't want this one in the US because in this case, the presence of horses in the midst of an outbreak is a risk factor for accelerating human infection. And that's why this one is so really, really different. Um, the incubation period in horses is about 12 hours to five days. So it's really, really fast. Wow. This virus is so infectious that it can be spread by aerosol. And the risk of aerosol transmission is significant enough that the US Army has investigated as a potential biologic warfare agent. And it's on their list of, of watches as potential biologic warfare agents. Um, the, they get a really high fever. Morbidity or the number of horses that get sick is somewhere between 10 to 100%. It tends to vary widely and that may be strain specific. Mortality also varies widely from 40 to 90%. So it's not quite as uh, fatal as Eastern, but pretty close in time, at times. We don't know how these epizootic strains are maintained in nature over time and why they flare up and die down and flare up and die down. There's speculation that it may be these enzootic strains that are there all along just circulating in rodents. At some point undergo a mutation it convert them to the epizootic strain and that may be what causes it to flare up, but that's not been shown for sure that I can tell. Um, humans that get infected, then up to 100% of people could get sick. They, most of them don't get encephalitis signs, it's like it's more of a pneumonia type sign, interstitial pneumonia. Um, about 10 to 15% progress to encephalitis and might die, but mortality overall is less than 1% in people. So they just get really sick. This is one of those diseases though that is worse in children and young children that get this virus are more likely to get encephalitis and die than are adults. And there's some speculation that maybe because this virus has a, a predilection in mice in the laboratory for um, 
bone cells, osteoclasts in that are really active and children would have really active bone growth. And they said, well, maybe that's why children appear to be more susceptible, but that, that's kind of speculative. So the most important difference between VE and the reason that I say that it probably has the highest global significance and should worry us most is because the horse is that amplification host. Um, humans can also get a viremia that technically might be high enough to spread the disease, but not as high as horses. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, human disease has never been documented without concurrent equine disease in the area. They occur together and infected horses can shed this virus in their body fluids. So you could, in theory, if your horse had Venezuelan encephalitis, become infected by direct contact or contact with fluids like nasal secretions from these horses. Um, and that makes VEE a true zoonosis. And it's the only one of these four viruses that truly could be um, directly contagious between horses. Although we think the vast majority of it occurs with mosquitoes, we, we do believe it can occur direct horse-to-horse -horse transmission. And um, contagious, communicable, and a zoonosis. And there are several species of mosquitoes that can transmit Venezuelan encephalitis, so we know we have mosquitoes in the U.S. that could transmit it. There are killed virus vaccines, and if you Google horse vaccines, you'll find them. The vast majority of horses in the U.S. do not need this vaccine because they don't have the virus. It is generally recommended for horses along that border with Mexico because we know if this virus comes into the United States, the most likely way for it to come up is because of an epizootic in Mexico that travels up across the border. And the mosquitoes don't respect national borders and they don't stop at customs. Um, and that is how it came in in 1971. Um, it crept up across um, into Southern Texas and uh, resulted in a massive uh, vaccination and mitigation campaign. That was before I was a veterinarian. Um, but I vaguely remember as a child some news stories about VE at that time. Now, when this happened in 1971, the killed virus vaccines were available. But when they went and vaccinated those horses in those at-risk countries, it's my understanding that that killed virus vaccine was not used. What was used was a modified live vaccine called TC83. TC stands for tissue culture. There are stockpiles of this vaccine available still. And the modified vaccine is much, modified live virus vaccine is much more efficacious and rapidly efficacious than the killed virus vaccine. Matter of fact, as a researcher working with live virus in the lab, I was vaccinated with the TC83 vaccine. So it, it is considered the better one. So to me, that's another reason not to bother vaccinated horse, unless you're right along that southern border, the kill vaccines would be great. But if there's an epizootic, my guess is there will be at least significant discussion, if not rapid release of TC83 vaccine for, for horses um, or something similar to that. Active cases, as I said, were reported in Mexico in early July this year, and Texas responded by encouraging vaccination of horse hunters. So the Texas um, Veterinary Medical people put out calls to increase vaccination of horses to try to put that barrier along the southern border. Um, and while, as I said, I believe the most likely scenario for us to get VEE is with it creeping up from the Mexico border, there's always the possibility that a mosquito could stow away in a plane or a cargo ship and travel into the United States on a plane coming from Mexico or South America and fly off in Des Moines and bite a horse. So it, these are the things that can show up. So those are the alpha viruses. Fascinating group of viruses, really different considerations. The only one that's probably a real threat to horses in the US is, is Eastern, and that's mostly on the East Coast, and it can be prevented with the vaccination. The others, though, warrant keeping an eye out. Let's talk now about West Nile virus. Yeah. <laughs> so West Nile virus, um, if you're a veterinarian who's been practicing in the last decade, you're probably familiar with West Nile virus. If you went to veterinary school, when I went to veterinary school, you learned nothing at all about West Nile virus. It was not on the radar at all. Um, this is a little different from the other three viruses. It is a flavivirus in the flavivirus family. Um, some closely related viruses include, uh, that you might have heard of, include yellow fever, bovine viral diarrhea, Japanese encephalitis. Um, it has some things in common with the alpha viruses. It's spread by mosquitoes. 
It exists in the sylvatic cycle that's birds and mosquitoes. Horses and humans are dead end hosts like they are for Eastern and Western um, because they only get a very, really low level of viremia. But that beyond that, there are some really important differences. Um, West Nile virus is, I refer to, and I don't know this is, this is a biological term, but I call it a promiscuous virus. It infects more than 200 different species of mosquitoes. It infects lots of different mammalian species. And as a result, it can spread much more easily than um, Eastern or Western. They are limited because of the small number of mosquitoes and the relatively small number of species that are susceptible. West Nile virus hits them all. Um, so I want to take a, like I did with Western, I want to go back and look at a little bit of the history of when West Nile came into the United States, because I think it's really fascinating. And spoiler alert, the hero of the story is again, a veterinarian. Um, West Nile virus first showed up in 1999 in New York, and I remember this really vividly in this, the stories when it first showed up. Um, subsequently, we determined it is an Israeli strain of the virus, um, most closely related to, I think, a strain from a goose in Israel. Um, a lot of experts have speculated that it arrived as a stowaway virus, because how did it get from Israel to New York? And a stowaway on a plane or a cargo ship, a mosquito, and then it flew out and it a bird and then it started escalating in the environment and it was in uh, Flushing, New York and it, there several elderly people started developing these unusual signs of encephalitis and they called public health the, the doctor who was a woman at the hospital there in Flushing called the public health people and said I think there's something weird going on because we've had several people with these very unusual signs of encephalitis all from the same neighborhood so they went out and they looked and they found lots of mosquitoes it was a very high mosquito population area and time of year and they said yeah you know we think this is a mosquito-borne virus so the physician takes blood samples from her patients and sends them to the centers for disease control in in georgia the cdc tests them against the things they generally test with and they initially said you know there's some um positivity to what's called st louis encephalitis virus which is also flavivirus and can cause encephalitis. Um, and said, so we really think this is St. Louis encephalitis. And if you look online, you can find some very, very early news reports where they speculate that that's what is causing these um, people to get sick. But at about the same time, all across New York, crows are dropping, literally dropping out of the sky, dying. Um, and there was a veterinarian at the Bronx Zoo, Dr. Tracy McNamara. And she was the chief veterinary pathologist there and she was seeing these dead crows outside the zoo and then she saw some of them fall on the ground dead in the zoo and she was really worried because they had a lot of rare and endangered species of birds and other animals and whatever was killing these crows she didn't know what it was but she didn't want it killing her zoo animals um, and she started examining some of the crows then over labor day weekend three flamingos died suddenly a pheasant a bald eagle a cormorant and rapid succession. So she's a pathologist and a very good pathologist. So she takes samples from these animals. She looks at them and she sees massive encephalitis and hemorrhage in the brain. And she's convinced because she's heard the news stories about what's going on in people that this must be related. So she calls, she gets some samples um, and approaches the CDC and says, I really think this is the same thing. I've got some samples from crows and some birds. And you need to look at this because I, and the CDC said, we only do human testing. We don't care about your dead crows, your dead birds. That's your problem. And they refused to examine the samples. But she was persistent because when you're a veterinarian, you must be persistent. <laughs> and she went to um, the animal health authorities in, in the country and she um, got them to do testing and they looked at it and um, she knew that St. Louis encephalitis virus did not infect or cause disease in birds. And she said, it can't be what's killing, you know, it can't be St. Louis encephalitis. I'm sure you're wrong. So the um, agricultural animal people started testing it and at the veterinary lab and they identified a novel virus and they said, hey, we see something here. We don't know what it is and we can't. Finally, the CDC took it and looked at it and discovered that it was West Nile virus, which heretofore had been seen only in Africa and the Middle East. Um, yep. And sure enough, the virus infecting the birds was the same one that was infecting these people, and it was all West Nile virus. 
um, which is a huge argument for the One Health movement and how absurd it is that the CDC would not have paid attention um, to this, no such thing as a coincidence, right? Um, right. So, but the veterinarian was persistent. They got the diagnosis. If not for her, who knows how much longer it would have taken them to get to the um, conclusion that it was West Nile virus killing both people and horses. Um, and that march across the United States in the next five or six years was just incredible. And I remember when it first happened, people said, oh, it'll just be isolated to one small part of the country. Look at That's Eastern. Winter. Yeah. Eastern never spread. It's not going to happen. But the difference is the promiscuity of this virus. It got into every mosquito it could find. And it went across the United States like wildfire. Um, the population of horses was quite naive um, and they were very susceptible. Um, this virus is still really active. Matter of fact, we've got a cluster of cases in Idaho, one of which came to us here very recently um, of West Nile virus. So this virus is still out there. The horses get a very low level of viremia. As I said previously, they are dead end hosts as are people. So they're not a danger to the people they're around. They're just an indicator that the virus is, activity in, is active in the bird population in the area. Um, Clinical signs are usually um, present in about seven to 10 days, but only about one in nine horses develops neurologic signs. That's the good news. So a little less than 10% of infected horses get neurologic signs. Um, muscle tremors are common. Fever is common, but it's usually not as high as with the alpha viruses, 102, 103. Many of them are ataxic um, and weakness is very common. This virus affects not only the brain, but also can affect the uh, brain stem, the cranial nerves, and the spinal cord, which separates it or differentiates it from West Nile. So you can get those spinal cord signs at all as well. Some horses, by the time they are seen by a veterinarian, are past the febrile stage. So not all of horses are febrile at the time they're examined. Um, the signs are much more variable than with um, the alpha viruses. Overall, of the slightly less than 10% that get neurologic signs, about a quarter to a third of them will progress and die. So most of them will survive, um, but there's still a quarter to a third is a lot. Yeah. If it's your quarter or a third. And um, there's, there's not a lot of specific treatment. A lot of it is supportive anti-inflammatory care. There are some hyperimmune plasma available that may be beneficial. It's still marketed by some of the plasma companies under a conditional license um, and can be obtained. It probably needs to be given fairly early on the onset of clinical signs. Um, diagnosis is confirmed with IgM capture ELISA. The vaccination is very effective in preventing disease. And I will say that these horses in Idaho that are having disease are largely either unvaccinated or undervaccinated. And I think that's true in most cases. Um, it is West Nile virus vaccine is considered a core vaccine for all horses, and I am a strong believer that you should vaccinate for it. Especially, I mean, it's still out there and it's still happening in clusters, and it's probably going to cycle up and down in clusters. The vaccine seems to be really, really safe, um, and one that I'm very supportive of. And again, it's probably best given in the spring, um, prior to the onset of mosquito season, wherever you are. If you're at a particularly high risk area, people used to recommend twice yearly. I don't know that that's necessary at this point. I think annual vaccination is probably reasonable. Um, as a conditionally licensed product, the therapy that's available, the plasma, is um, it, it's assessed for safety, purity, and reasonable expectation of efficacy, but there's not strong proof it will help. So I would not recommend relying on hypermune plasma. I would recommend vaccination for your horses. Uh, these diseases are all really interesting. I think it's really important for veterinarians as a profession to stay abreast of what's happening elsewhere in the country and keep their eyes on what's going on in both people and in other parts of the country. And for me, one of the best sources of information, if I am curious about what's happening with strangles, what's happening with influenza, what's happening with West Nile virus, is the Equine Disease Communication Center. So I want to put in a plug for that group. If you go online and, and search for Equine Disease Communication Center, it will call it up. The service is free. You can search based on state, based on disease. You can find outbreaks, details of case information, vaccination history where available. 
it is a, a gold mine of information. And it's the first place I want to go if I talk to a client and I'm hearing rumors of disease or the possibility of disease to see what information they have out there and if there's something active in that area. So I, I wanted to throw that in. The AAP is also a really good source for information on diseases and on vaccine recommendations. So I'll put a plug in for them at the end as well. That's great. And yeah, we've had Dr. White on here a couple of times. We had him earlier this year and he had some wonderful statistics based yeah. on CDC has seen across the country. And it, I totally agree. It's a great place for veterinarians to keep up with what is happening and what could happen. Yes, uh, and it's a great resource to have and they are um, struggling to stay funded and um, working with equine organizations to try to maintain the funding to keep going. And I hope it I hope it works because I think it's really important for the industry. I do too. Well, this has been fascinating and I always love talking to you because I never fail to go away without some new information. And I, I knew this was going to be good, but wow, this was great. So thank you very much, Dr. Salen, for joining me on this episode of Disease Du Jour. And there's some other topics you and I had talked about before we started today. I think we're going to have to come back and, and touch on some of those, including tetanus, which I think is a big passion point for both of us. Yes. <laughs> so thank you to our audience for listening to Disease Du Jour today, and a special thanks to our 2021 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. We invite you to listen and rate and make sure you sign up for the Disease Du Jour podcast so you don't miss any of them on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And if you have any questions or suggestions, send me an email to kbrown at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network and entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 